as Indian forces and diplomats race against the clock to bring Indians safely back from Sudan. What's the story behind the conflict and the fight between two generals, as it's being called? Which of the global players are involved and how could India be impacted by its fallout? Hello and welcome to Worldview at The Hindu with me, Sohasini Heather. It's time to get you some answers to all those questions. It was meant to be a time of peaceful transition to civilian rule. Instead, as Sudan's top two generals range their forces against each other, this North African country is facing a return to civil war instead, with hundreds dead and thousands fleeing the country. We'll speak about the Indian uh, evacuation operation, about uh, taking about 3,000 Indians who are caught in the crossfire out from there. And we'll talk about that in just a bit. But first, let's just tell you what's happened there. Remember, for 30 years, or more than three decades, Sudan was ruled by one leader, Omar al-Bashir. He was an African strongman known for a brutal regime, but a very strong power there. And for the use, particularly, of the Janjaweed militia that carried out killings in the troubled western Darfur region of Sudan. Eventually, he lost control of South Sudan, which became an independent country in 2011. Bashir was a major figure in the region, no doubt. Like many of his neighbors, he had in fact visited India last in 2015 for the India-Africa conference, even after being convicted by the ICC for war crimes. And you can read an interview he actually gave the, a Hindu at the time. Now, in 2019, Sudan's two top generals, now this is from the SAF, the Sudanese Armed Forces, uh, there was General Abdel Fateh al-Burhan, and then there was the head of the Rapid Support Forces, RSF group. That's a paramilitary group created out of the Janjaweed militia I just told you about. And he's called General Mohammad Hamdan Dagalo, also called uh, popularly as Hemeti. Both, in fact, both these generals, so of the SAF, the RSF, uh, the SAF on one side and the RSF on the other, both of them got together and helped a civilian uprising against Omar Bashir. This was in 2019. Omar Bashir was ousted and jailed. A civilian military combine then ruled Sudan. But in 2021, just two years later, the military combine toppled the civilian government. A power struggle for control between the two generals actually began. And then now in this year, 2023, General Burhan said he was beginning a transition to civilian control and it was set to take place, in fact, in April, May, uh, General Dagalo or Hameti objected to his plans, particularly plans he had for merging the uh, Sudanese military with the paramilitary forces that Hameti was in charge of. And there was, uh, that point was the breaking point and fighting broke out in clashes that even saw the SAF Air Force bomb RSF bases, RSF fighters take airports, nearly 500 people are dead more than 4,000 injured. Now, as a 72-hour ceasefire was announced this week, India joined dozens of other countries in evacuation operations while that window still lasted. Many were able to fly out their nationals directly from Sudan and are using, in fact, Port Sudan and then going to Saudi Arabia's Jeddah as a hub for evacuation. The others, as I said, flew them out directly. So let's focus now on India's own operations for those roughly 3,000 Indians, as I told you, one of whom tragically died uh, in the crossfire, the stray bullet we are being told. And remember, in Sudan, there are also about a 1,000 people of Indian origin, PIOs, who actually migrated from Saurashtra about a century ago. There are also some requests to India from neighboring countries like Sri Lanka 
to help evacuate their citizens, just as India, in fact, has been helped to evacuate its citizens by Saudi Arabia and even by France. Uh, so here is what the government did. A control room was set up in Delhi and in the Sudanese capital of Khartoum, also one in Jeddah in Saudi Arabia. The MEA then reached out to governments in the UK, in the US, in UAE, uh, Saudi Arabia and Egypt. We'll tell you more about why they're all important to coordinate efforts. And External Affairs Minister Jai Shankar actually on his way uh, to the Caribbean islands uh, where he was going for a scheduled visit, stopped by at the United Nations, met with the UN Secretary General and discussed how to coordinate India's operations. Also, Minister of State Murli Dharan was sent to Jeddah. He was based there. He greeted those who came from Sidan and then ensured their arrangements to return to India. Next, Indians who wanted to leave, and most of them did, were asked to register online with the embassy, join their message groups, and then were guided on coming out of Khartoum, where really the fighting is the worst. The power struggle is the worst there. At the same time, India's military forces sent two C-130J planes uh, to Jeddah, as well as three Indian naval warships, the INS Sumeda, Teg, and Tarkash, to Port Sudan. Uh, Indians then were brought out and, and they came out on buses, in fact, mainly from Khartoum to the port of Sudan. Uh, accompanied by Indian embassy officials, it was a torturous, very dangerous route, about 25 hours in all of about 800 kilometers, some of it through fighting. And then they were taken from there to ships on ships to Jeddah. Finally, they were flown back to India from Jeddah in Saudi Arabia aboard chartered flights and military planes. And that uh, process is still going on. Remember, 3,000 people uh, to be taken out in all, and it could actually be more. So here's what Foreign Secretary Vinay Quatra said while briefing journalists this week about Operation Kaveri. Listen in. The situation on the ground remains highly volatile uh, with the, as I said, conflicting report of claims coming from both sides. Um, so when we talk about Operation Kaveri, you, uh, you know, naturally there would be a, a degree of focus on number of Indians who are stuck in Sudan, how many have come back, how many we are planning to bring back, which is uh, a very significant and probably the most important consideration for government of India. But uh, I would uh, also suggest to you to keep in mind the ecosystem in which this exercise of assisting and bringing back the standard Indians is taking place. So a difficult operation there. And in some senses, the conflict in Sudan uh, is not unlike conflict in its neighboring countries that have seen these very, very violent transitions like Egypt, where even a decade after the Arab Spring toppled Hosni Mubarak, the military remains supreme. There's Abdul Fateh al-Sisi over there, Libya, where NATO forces ousted and even eventually helped kill Gaddafi. Chaos continues amidst two power centers in Tripoli and in Benghazi. So like them, the conflict in Sudan has several external players as well and many countries that are ranged on one side or the other of these two generals and of the conflict. Some for historic reasons, others due to new rivalries, and many due to their own interests. So let's just take a broad look. They're the big powers. The US, of course, has been pushing for this civilian transition. And some said they pushed too hard. 
uh, as that led to the current round of fighting and they were working mainly with General Burhan at the time and trying to push him to do the civilian transition. Russia, on the other hand, not directly involved as, as people say, but the Wagner group that is meant to be a militia mercenary force working for the Russian government, that has been also involved in Ukraine. So this is the interesting Ukraine connection, has in fact been training RSF paramilitary soldiers, uh, many saying that Wagner militia also present at RSF bases. Uh, then there's China. It has major economic interests, investments in infrastructure, in oil, about $3 billion just in annual trade with billions of dollars invested there. And it has evacuated about 1,500 nationals so far. Uh, some wonder, though, uh, where, what China's role now will be. Will it be on one side or the other? Or will it, in fact, offer to mediate, as it has done very recently, between Saudi Arabia and Iran? In fact, besides those, there are UK and France, as well as Turkey. Those are all old colonial powers in uh, Sudan. We've had French Sudan, Turkish Sudan. Uh, but all of these colonial powers have taken a backseat in recent years. Next, you come to the regional powers. Saudi Arabia, seen backing General Burhan as the military ruler. In fact, during the Yemen war, Sudanese forces actually joined the Saudi-UAE coalition to fight the Houthis. So the Saudis are quite uh, close uh, to the military leadership there. Then there's Israel, which in 2020 actually began to normalize its ties with Sudan, a country which it had earlier fought wars with in 1948 and 1967 when Sudanese forces were sent uh, to fight with Israel. Today, of course, Israel was seen much closer to General Burhan who negotiated the deal for normalization after the Abraham Accords took place with UAE and other countries. And uh, now Israel is actually understood to be offering not just to host talks, but also to mediate between the two generals. The UAE, on the other hand, the United Arab Emirates, uh, which buys most of Sudan's gold reserves, remember, which are in the West, uh, has been closer to the RSF. In fact, many saying that the UAE has been providing military equipment to the RSF run by Hemeti. What about Sudan's own neighbors? Egypt has, of course, by far the most influence in Sudan and has by and large been traditional and largely backed the main power, which is General Burhan. However, to the West, Chad uh, has, uh, where the RSF has its supply chains running through, has actually been closer to the Hemeti faction. There's also Ethiopia, which has had tensions with Sudan over the construction of a dam on the Nile. Uh, as well as a boundary dispute that has gone on for decades, is also watching closely, especially what comes across the border. And like in the rest of this part of Africa, pan-Islamist, jihadist terrorist groups have been active in Sudan. Uh, we know Al-Qaeda, Al-Shabaab, ISIS all have involvement there. So this is a tinderbox in many ways. Uh, and the question then, how does this all impact India? Now, India's ties with Sudan actually run from civilizational ties. Uh, there's understood to have been trade through Mesopotamia between the Nile and the Indus Valley civilizations even. But for more than a century, a business community from Saurashtra has been settled in Sudan. They're Sudanese citizens uh, maintaining ties with India. During al-Bashir's time in particular, India was Sudan's uh, second largest exporter. Uh, with trade of about $1.2 billion. Since 2003, India has also invested about $3 billion in Sudan, largely in the Sudan, South Sudan petroleum sector, also in the oil reserves. Uh, and of course, a conflict in Sudan will affect India's ties with the entire region. And given UAE and Saudi Arabia arranged on opposite sides, 
will require some balancing from New Delhi. Now, we did deal uh, with the subject of Indian evacuations from conflicts in an episode about a year ago when evacuation operations were underway from Ukraine. And the latest operation from Sudan, what is being called Operation Kaveri, does compare uh, with the huge coordination efforts between diplomats on the ground, the Ministry of External Affairs in Delhi, the Indian Armed Forces as well, and foreign governments. And as we have seen in the past few decades, the numbers may be larger or, or lesser, but the coordination effort remains pretty difficult. The war in Iraq, we saw it to Lebanon, Libya, Yemen, Afghanistan, uh, and then Ukraine. While I won't repeat the conclusions of the previous uh, episode on evacuations, there is this update to add. In 2022, the Parliamentary Committee on External Affairs actually published its report and made several suggestions on the way forward for evacuation operations, in addition to what the MEA already has, an existing crisis management protocol and a rapid response cell. But the report also recommended the following, full that a full database of Indians living in each country around the world uh, with contact details must be maintained and updated. Second, an SOP, a standard operating procedure or protocol manual to be published, rather than having a case-by-case -case approach when a crisis breaks out. Third, they spoke about a de dedicated force or a dedicated group for evacuation process that can then be constituted, constituted very quickly, uh, and special training for Indian diplomats who go out to the embassies in evacuation preparedness. So what's world news take? The truth is, with more than 14 million Indians, living in 208 countries and jurisdictions worldwide, every practically every part of the world. And more than 18 million PIOs, persons of Indian origin, who have relatives in India, there really is no crisis in any corner of the world that doesn't affect an Indian. It is necessary, therefore, to always be in preparedness for evacuation missions. And as India has done in this crisis as well, to coordinate closely with other powers in the region and beyond, without getting embroiled in proxy wars within the conflict. Let's get you some reading recommendations. And of course, as I said, on evacuation operations, I've already given a number of recommendations about the diaspora as well. So I'd urge you to go back and see the worldview from the past. But I'll add a few books, particularly on the conflict in Africa and in Sudan. One book, lovely read, is A Line in the River, Khartoum, City of Memory by Jamal Neju. Who, was, uh, who did grow up actually in Khartoum, War and Genocide in South Sudan. It's a paperback small book by Clemence Pignot. This is a book that's been well recommended. I haven't read it yet, but I intend to now. It's called When Peace Kills Politics, International Intervention and Unending Wars in the Sudans. This is by Sharat Srinivasan. Then there is this book called The Blue Nile and the White Nile. It deals with the histories of the countries along the river. So the Blue Nile deals with the Sudan part. This is by Alan Moorhead. It's an older book. Uh, Sudan, Race, Religion and Violence by somebody called Jok Maduk Jok. Also India-Africa Relations, Changing Horizons by Rajiv Bhatia. It's a much closer look at India's relations with several African countries. It's not that specific on Sudan. Uh, but a very, very important read on how India needs to approach the continent. And then there's India and Africa, Common Security Challenges for the Next Decade by Ruchita Berry, collection of essays over there. Uh, finally, last year, I recommended the works of Devesh Kapoor on diaspora studies. So I'm adding just two books here uh, that I hadn't included that time. One is called India Moving, A History of Migration by Chinmay Tumle. Also, 
Politics of Migration, Indian Emigration in a Globalized World. This is by A. Didar Singh and by S. Iriday Rajan. Uh, it's a book brought out by Routledge India. So as usual, we hope you enjoy reading all these books and do join us again here on Worldview from the team. Thanks for watching.